No Bev is, I think, an iconic New York saying. Like, even if you're just getting, like, you know, a, a zebra cake at the deli, you should go get an Arizona with that as well. Are Arizona still 99 cents? If they aren't, that should be illegal. But uh, <laughs> when Arizona's were 99 cents, it's like there's no excuse. I'm enjoying this uh, New York deli pairing a lot. Actually, I'm going to try that. It's a great pairing. Um, this also feels very Italian, and you you even made a little uh, Italian hand when you were describing it. In this uncivilized state of having wine or f- other drinks or food by themselves. Welcome to Moto di Berry, the podcast about local drinks and local sayings. I'm your host, Rose Thomas Bannister. I'm super excited about today's interview, and not just because I have a cocktail in my hand. Before we start the interview, I want to remind you that this is a listener-supported show. And if you'd like to become one of those supporters, you can take a moment to visit patreon.com slash sign up as a patron for $5 a month, and unlock bonus content. Since my guest today is a social media phenom, I should also mention that you can follow Moto Berry on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok, and you should. Julia Alvarez-Katz is a food writer, producer, and novelist with a degree in food science and a passion for the local culture of New York City. She recently concluded a series of 30 videos for the blog Righteous Eats on the subject of New Yorkers' third places. Julia, welcome. Thank you for having me. This is terribly exciting. What is a third place? Uh, third place is defined as simply as possible. It's a place that you spend your time that is neither your home nor your workspace or workplace. People operate on different definitions. A big critique I got was that third places should be free. And uh, broadly, I agree with that. Uh, They should be. It's just we live in a country where there's not a lot of political incentive to do that. So we make do with what we have. So what I decided to cover in uh, third places for righteous eats, you know, as I'm sure you can guess from the eats portion of the title, is uh, restaurants, because restaurants are certainly third places. Not always, but often. I mean, bars come to mind. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like the guy who coined the term, he had like a sort of an abridged list of like examples. And what he had said was like bars, coffee shops, barber shops, parks, libraries, like that sort of place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I, I kept it like pretty broad, but I had to make sure that there was some food being eaten, maybe not just on the premises, like if there's food nearby mm-hmm, to a third mm-hmm. place that like you can merge them together. Uh, I would do that as well. But. So there's like where you work or go to school and then there's your house and then there's the place you hang out. And that's your yeah. your third place. The leisure area. My dad uh, likes to talk about kind of the, the really local bar as uh, the bucket of blood. Yeah. But I think that would that's be a, great term. A, a third place category. I think that's true. Yeah. <laughs> the haunt would be a one the as haunt. well. Yeah. I actually love this concept so much. I dusted off my skills as a retired mixologist and invented a cocktail in honor of Julia's series, of which I'm a big fan. So the new local drink we are enjoying together is called the third place. Mm. Mm. <laughs> mm. 
Woo. So it's a variation of the classic cocktail, the Bijou, which means jewel in French, equal parts, gin, sweet vermouth, and green chartreuse. Uh, my version has a local gin called Ode to Babel, which is produced by the women-owned Black-owned social club Ode to Babel. It's distilled in Greenpoint uh, in Brooklyn, an Italian herbal spirit from Piemonte called Centum Herbis, and a Corsican wine aperitif with quinine called Cap Corsica. It's stunningly delicious. It's We were talking about it. It's kind of like a chartreuse Negroni yeah. served up. Yeah. Chartreuse, this liqueur made by monks, and it's like not available, widely available right now, which is kind of an interesting story. They just decided not to scale up for the global market. They're just going to keep doing their monk thing, So, which is great because it actually led me to encounter a bunch of new products. So, Julia, what is a local saying that you have to, to start the show? Okay. I... Had another one, but honestly, it's kind of lame. I want to bring up the one that I brought up before. You can do as many as you want. No Bev is, I think, an iconic New York saying for a very specific age group. If you hear No Bev and you know what I'm saying, you know. like, And it's really just about, like, why would you eat without a beverage? And also, conversely, why would you have a beverage without eating? The two go hand in hand. They're you know, I guess that's why I'm here. This is this is a no Bev situation. Yes, yes, yeah. I refuse to know Bev, so here I am with a Bev. New York is all about maximizing, mm. making things efficient and fun as easily as possible. So wait, no Bev is when you're not drinking anything. Yeah. So eating without drinking. Yes. Yeah. So what's the opposite? No snatting. I don't remember how you were sp- supposed to pronounce it because it was an online thing for a long time. How's it spelled? It was spelled N-O, N-O, obviously, uh, S-N-A-I-N-G. And then oh. there was sometimes like stylized with like a space in between mm. snot and I-N-G. Snotting. Sometimes with a hyphen, but it, you know, it's loose slang uh, from the streets of New York City. So it's uh, hard to really nail down a particular spelling describing this uncivilized state of having wine or other drinks or food by themselves yeah like even if you're just getting like you know a a zebra cake at the deli you should go get an arizona with that as well are arizona still 99 cents if they aren't that should be illegal but (laughs) uh when arizona's were 99 cents it's like there's no excuse i'm enjoying this uh new york deli pairing a lot actually i'm gonna try that it's a great pairing um, this also feels very Italian, and you you even made a little uh, Italian hand when you were describing it. In in looking for this drink, because you know we were just, I was just an, a fan of your internet work and your writing. The only thing that I really know about your background is the flags that you have on your Instagram page. So I realized, okay, I think this is a Cuban flag, and it's the definitely the Italian flag. So I know a little bit about your family background just from family members that you mentioned mm. on your videos. But why do you speak Italian? It's a bit of a story uh, and a lot of like people moving. It starts in the 60s. My grandma, who is Italian, that's like the reason broadly, <laughs> but she was getting up there in age for the time. She was like 30 and unmarried, which was a problem. 
And she just wasn't feeling for Italian boys. She goes to Spain with her girlfriends, meets my grandpa, who is this like tiny 19 year old scrappy little British kid. But he's like really swarthy because he's Jewish. And so she's like, oh, this beautiful Spaniard, he's going to like come sweep me off my, off my feet. And he, my grandpa tells her a whole bunch of lies. She says like, <laughs> I'm really rich. I'm from England. Do you know anything about England? She's like, no, because I'm a country girl. And he's like, huh, it never rains there. Are you kidding? Yeah. Because she really was very... She believes him. She was so ignorant at the time. She like just didn't know much because she was really like from the boondocks. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another. She got pregnant with my mom. They moved her to the United Kingdom. She learned English in like 10 minutes. But of course, because she was learning English as she was raising this child, my mom learned Italian. And then my mom, when she was pregnant with me, read an article in like the New Yorker or something that said that bilingual children were smarter or more accomplished than regular children. And she was like, well, she wanted to do right by you. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So that's why. And uh, I so she was playing like Rosetta Stone to her belly. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. And also just like, yeah, insisting on like the house being like, you only speak Italian in the house. She's gotten looser with it over the years. But when I was pretty young, I was like, if you spoke English in the house, it was a problem. Mm. I mean, you're probably glad now, but when you were a kid, was that annoying to you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because also because I felt like the vocabulary I had in Italian was so limited by the fact that I only spoke it with family. And mm. it got even worse when I lived in Italy because there's so much, you know, there's a lot of things you would not speak about with your family, like ever. Right. So only speaking it with your family, you just never learn. Like, there's so many words I didn't know. I didn't know how to like, buy weed i didn't know what the word for nipple was like and you know you don't think that this is going to be important information until you're stuck in a situation where you're like well fuck it would have been nice if i knew uh and i didn't so i found it really annoying when i was a kid and i wanted to describe something that was happening to me in a largely english-speaking world in italian and just not having the words at all mm -hmm. just being like i don't know what it's called a computer in italian like i don't know what a I don't know, bus is. Right, right. Well, aside from vocabulary, though, like, I feel like that speaking at home thing is just, I mean, I can't think of a better way to gain flu get fluency. Yes. Like, like just that naturalness, the accent, the sort of the sonic universe of it all. Mm. Yeah, hearing it definitely was helpful. And then also, like, the fact that it wasn't just, like, my mom. It was also, like, my grandma and my grandpa, you know, over the years, he learned really good Italian, like, enough to conduct business in the country so like he's also for the most part using italian even though he's british and like i think it was great for fluency uh and it made me feel like i was part of like this cool group because like in new york there's always like a these are split in school between like the kids who speak other languages and the kids who don't mm -hmm. and honestly and this maybe is not the case literally everywhere else but like in new york if you're the kid that only speaks one language you're kind of lame I love that, actually. Yeah. Like, um, if you're the kid who's like, if you speak like Spanish at home, it's like, okay, cool, like, awesome. If you speak like, you know, French, that's like slightly more interesting, a little more like unusual. If you speak something like Swedish or like Thai, it's over. You're the coolest kid in school. Yeah. Like, it was so interesting. So, you know, you get so much of it. You got to create hierarchy somehow. You speak Spanish also. Yeah, a little. I'm less proud of it because um, I think... Also, I feel like in Italian, you get to practice and it's way lower stakes here. If you practice in Spanish, like in New York, 
you're first of all, you're most likely talking to like a Dominican or a Puerto Rican and they already talk in a way that's very difficult and fast. Mm-hmm. And like mm-hmm. if you're not super tight with your Spanish, it can be hard. And also there's like, you know, the no sabo kid thing. Some people are really mean about it. I don't know what that is. Oh, so if you're in, within like the Latin American world, there's this term called no sabo kid, which refers to like a Latin person a hispanic person who grew up in the u.s and who doesn't speak spanish or who speaks like a shitty spanish and it's used not in a nice way it's like kind of a i wouldn't call it derogatory that's like a little serious but it's just an unkind thing to say and it makes people feel insecure like myself it's just not a very nice thing to say oh you know i agree because there's so many people who have another language or culture just one generation removed that just simply didn't have the experience that you had of speaking the other language at home, you know, maybe because their parents wanted them to assimilate or there's this huge connection that a lot of people feel a lot of grief and yeah. um, and even shame about. And I feel so sad when people feel shame around language know, things. That's so kind sad. of the whole point of this project, really. And I've always found it really hard to understand why people jump to the, like, sort of denigrating the no sabo kid because it's like you know better than anybody what it meant not like maybe not now like in new york city but you know not very long ago if you were like a hispanic person in like new jersey speaking spanish was like a stain like my Mm, dad mm -hmm. like was discouraged from speaking spanish anywhere outside the house because it was like just you know it didn't look you know didn't sound right didn't look right created more problems than it solved and that's only recently changed. So I feel like, you know, people should give a little more grace. I know. It's a bit, it's funny to just jump straight to the judgmentalness, you know? Yeah. Okay, you're judgmental if you speak a language besides English. Okay, now we're being judgmental if you don't. I mean, come on, can't people just exist and try to learn things outside of that stressful, judgmental environment? Yeah, absolutely. So the Caribbean connection comes from your dad's side of the yes. family? That whole side of the family is very straightforward. They're just Cuban for his far back as anybody can remember yeah uh i did a dna test sorry and uh turns out there's like a big population of cubans in cuba who are originally from the canary islands and i'm one of them didn't know that detail about cuba i kind of knew what the canary islands were but i didn't know where the hell they were didn't realize they were that far south why does spain have it have you been there? No, I really want to go now, though. They have amazing wine. I've heard. I was really looking into, like, all the food in the Canaries, and they got this whole thing of, like, these different kinds of, like, spicy fruit jams. It's, like, a mm. big thing there. They sell them at all, like, the tourist shops. I found this weird store out of uh, somewhere like Mallorca or somewhere that was selling just, like, weird Canarian imports. Uh, and I just found it so interesting. I was like, what are you guys doing over there? Like... What's going on? They're so far away from, like, so many things. I would really like to go to the Canary Islands. It's pretty high on my list. What I really feel through your work is your love for New York City, specifically the multicultural glory that is New York. You guys can find Julia's videos on her Instagram, Julia underscore underscore ak but i just wanted to talk about some of my favorite videos in the series to kind of get, oh, wait, get yeah, people I, excited about, yes. about to understand why i asked you to come on the podcast and what is so fun about it 
First of all, I can totally relate to the subway as a third space. I Thank love you. that you added that. There's something about it. For me, even when it's hell, it can be restful. Oh, so Does much. that make sense yes, to you? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I've, I mean, I find the subway a profoundly comforting place. I do not understand or relate when people are like, I get so scared. Like, sure, I get why you might be scared. Realistically, like, I'm sure there's like... I mean, like you measure risk every day when you get up, like it is what it is. But I've always found the subway really comforting. The noise of it, the smell of it, even when it's stanky, like the vibe, there's just like something about it. I find I find it very moving and very uh, it's very important to me. I was really sad when they gave us Wi-Fi because too. that liminal space situation where you had to like read a book or kind of rest or be alone with your thoughts and and get transported somewhere else then yeah. you were just kind of plugged into the same the same thread the whole time without that sort of break yeah i mean i rarely look at my phone on the train other than to like play music like i'm very big on like i mean generally outside i need music in mm -hmm. my ears cuz mm -hmm. otherwise it's just a little overstimulating but on the train, it's really just like tunes and like my own thoughts. I like let my eyes cross and I just like think about something random, have a wildly vivid daydream. Or uh, I also like looking at people. I mean, like, OK, listen, when I say looking at people, I mean like staring. Like we're not doing staring or not like making people aware that you're, you're looking watching. at them. Yeah. It's just like a glance when they're not looking. The second they look at you, you look away, like have some respect. But that's also one of my favorite things because there's so many cool people, so many great faces, great like energies and expressions and like ways of moving and sitting down like. And incredible outfits. Yes. My God, the outfits. And so many times. And I combinations and sometimes. Like sometimes I'm just kind of lost in my own thoughts. And then I suddenly look around the train car and just see how everybody's bringing it in their own way and yeah yeah there, and there can just be some like in a, it's it's random right i mean you know people are going to a certain neighborhood at a certain time for a certain reason yes. maybe but there's also this randomness and, and sometimes you just look around and it's just this glorious little slice of humanity that you just right? got thrown into and you just and then the best minutes. part is when you get to witness it as like a grouping as a unit mm -hmm. and then you like split it up and you're like okay that guy maybe like has a wife, has a kid, got divorced. Like you could, there's so many like possibilities for the way that like any individual's life could go, could have gone. And if you spend even like a half second just thinking like, this is a very complex, fully formed person and we're just all in the tube together. Like it's so funny, but also so magical and cool. And I just like, I can't live without it. It's really like, yeah. that's, that's why I stick around. So speaking of staring etiquette, another etiquette thing that people love to talk about on the train is what to eat on the train. And I, I loved how you brought food into there by demonstrating good subway eating technique. I think you ate yeah. like beef jerky or yes. something. Yeah. <laughs> it does not smell or exactly. spill. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking like, I've seen some people eat crazy stuff on the train. Ooh, like, tell me some examples. Uh, I once saw somebody, you know how like when you go to a seafood place, you can get like those plastic bags of just like a crab boil or something with like the corn, the potatoes, like all the seafood. <laughs> like he had one of those and was just like, it was the summertime. So we just had a tank top on. He was shoving like his arm like, elbow deep into this big bag of seafood and just like sort of snapping open crab claws and just kind of like 
suckling it off his it was bizarre <laughs> it was so dramatic that is the messiest thing i can almost I know. imagine and he, he eating on the train up an entire like chunk of the train of just because it was like spraying sauce everywhere he had like a splash zone <laughs> and the corn squirting yeah it was oh just like God. and you know part of me i remember at the time thinking i shouldn't judge him too hard we're on the train from coney island but then in retrospect what like why why should that make it okay that we were on the train from coney island and he's got this bag of seafood like that's crazy what's the weirdest thing you've ever eaten and or spilled on the train Ooh. Or was there a moment when you were like, oh, I'm that guy? I dropped a bottle of blue bilberry kombucha. Oh, no. On like a morning rush hour train. Oh, no. Uh, it, it, I mean, it didn't explode and like hurt anybody, but there was an entire bottle of bilberry kombucha foaming and mm. running along the floor. I'm trying to think. Oh, I know exactly what it was. Eighth grade. I had just left a Starbucks with my friend on the Upper West Side, and we were going to head downtown to meet some boys. And we had gotten these, like, what is the biggest size at Starbucks? Is that a grande? Venti. Venti. We had a Venti-sized Frappuccino, one each. And we were, it was like a super crowded train, and (laughs) I got jostled by some guy, always on fucking 42nd Street, and the frappuccino, I barely sipped it because it was too cold and I had teeth sensitivity at the time. <laughs> and so I was holding on to it, waiting for it to like dilute a little. <laughs> and then the whole thing went, it, like the way that it had fallen to was so comical. It went like down the length of the train. Yes, my bilberry kombucha did that too. All the way down. So you could just be shamed for the entire slice of, yeah. the entire um, boggle container of humanity exactly everybody saw every and then like as the train was moving and it had diluted a bit the frappuccino was dripping it's gross Uh, like was it like a strawberry frappuccino no it was like a chocolate one chocolate like a java chip or like oh no there were chunks yeah yeah it was awful and i i mean i don't think i bring drinks on the train unless it's something like really contained or like something okay like a coffee Another one of your videos that I really loved was the dim sum video. I've only had dim sum a few times and I, I I found myself just feeling like I didn't know what was going on. So I really appreciated your video, which was saying that you've eaten dim sum your entire life and you still don't know what's going on. Um, yeah, like, <laughs> and that's part of the fun. Yeah, and, and you said something in there like expertise is lonely because you don't have to ask questions anymore. So yeah. You, you don't have to talk to anyone. Damn, I forgot I wrote that. I thought that was really deep. God damn. Shit, I guess it was. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It spoke to me. It spoke to me because, you know, I'm diving in, learning about Italian wine and Mm. trying to learn something about all the dialects and, you know, the whole world. And, you know, if you're if you feel like you need to be an expert or that you can sort of conquer a field of knowledge, I think that is lonely. Yeah. Also sounds, frankly, to me a bit boring mm-hmm. like as much as i respect and really like admire people that are incredibly good at just one thing like they know everything about just one thing i never understood that because i'm like how like don't you like is there nothing else like that you want to put in your big honking brain like nothing well, nobody knows everything no, about I know. something. Like, and if they if they could, then it's probably kind of a boring thing. Right? That's true, yeah. I mean, I guess the things that I like are the things that 
you know, are just in vast. But everything's vast. Yeah. And when I mean, for me, when I learn something, I this whole other level opens up, and I'm just like, and it's like a a tree or a nerve system or something that just keeps splitting off and going yeah. on and on and on. And you, you didn't even know that there was another whole, set, whole level, but there's always another level. Yeah. And, and always different yeah. trails yeah. to yeah. choose. Oh, I also loved your, speaking of third spaces that aren't restaurants, I loved your concept of Union Square as a waiting room. <laughs> <laughs> that was totally That's literally how it's always felt. Because it's like, I think it being that much of a transit hub mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. such a spot where just like shit goes down. It's a really interesting place to just kind of meet up with somebody. And I always end up seeing some amazing stuff, doing amazing stuff, never because I meant to go there. Yeah. Like I never yeah. sat there and was like, let me go to Union Square today. So I was like, I got to meet up with somebody. They're meeting us at Union Square. Like One of the things that I liked about your series was really describing how New Yorkers do third spaces. I mean, we have our watering holes in our bars and stuff, Mm. right, for sure. But a lot of times it really is a deli where you are just standing for a little while and then the place that you can sort of fold yourself into or lean against in order to eat something out of crumpled paper. And that is like our our moments of pause. And I was thinking when looking at some of your deli park combo type videos, one of my favorite sort of funny little part-time jobs I've ever done in New York was packing toys in my friend's toy warehouse storage unit in East New York. Yeah. Um, and there was just like, I mean, this was just me, you know, coming here and belatedly discovering Dominican steam tables. Oh, uh, wow, but just this, the, the food, I mean, come on. But just also just the the crowd of people would come in every day and just be like, more gravy, more gravel, mm-hmm. gravy, and just, you know, just kind of stand there. And we, we really do just kind of stand around and stuff our faces. We, we appreciate Pretty what much, we're eating yeah. so much. Something that I never did or like mentioned in any of the third places videos but that kind of felt present throughout every single one that i made was this sense that like you don't really like choose your third place Mm. but it doesn't really choose you either it just kind of happens like it's (laughs) a convergence of a lot of unrelated things that need to happen all at the same time for it to do that once it does it it's it's doing it like and there's no going back there's no changing the way that you relate to it the way you engage with it it's so much less choice involved or what choice there is is like subconscious and vague and like hard to pin down like you know you go to a restaurant just because you want a given type of food or like something at a price point or whatever there's all this choice all this choosing happening you like have to make a decision i actually kind of hate deciding what i'm supposed to eat I kind of hate it. It's stressful. So third places, I think, was really nice to me because it was especially once I got other people involved in like suggesting theirs. There was this sense of like they like so many of the people who would tell me this was their third place were like, you know, kind of taken aback by that fact. Like once they learned what the term was, they're like, oh, that's what it is. And they're like, oh, yeah, I guess that's what it is. Do you think the third place is a place where you have a really hard time making yourself order anything different. You always get the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I ended up just 
developing a much deeper relationship with a local deli. After on the very first interview of this podcast, I was interviewing um, my amazing British friend who works in Italian wine and also with uh, the Wine and Hip Hop podcast. And she was telling me about some of their pairings and mentioned the chopped cheese as a sandwich that everybody knows about, but I didn't. <gasps> no one had shown it to me. And I oh felt my. like, honestly, that it had been being kept from me. And uh, it turns out, you know, that they have really great chopped cheese just at at, oh, at, love that. at my deli. You know, really, it kind of changed our lives. It's kind of hard to feed my kid because uh, they're always getting chopped cheese, mm. uh, you know, right after school and yep. then not hungry for dinner. There is That is such a New York ritual of <laughs> being a, like, kid is you go immediately after school is always a deli like right next to the school they know what they're doing mm-hmm. they know what mm-hmm. they're doing if they're if they really know what they're do- they're doing they got curly fries uh and they'll let the kids just kind of dominate it for like a half hour it's never long but like you just if it's you're theirs. a regular person you just need to avoid it for that half hour yeah you just gorge yourself on like curly fries chopped cheese bacon egg and cheese sometimes like random stuff chips arizona's uh and then you're not into dinner and you're like god mom i, I don't want dinner i don't Why want are you that. cooking again Ugh, we always cooking. why don't we get takeout god <laughs> i want a chinese food <laughs> like yeah uh oh my god takeout oh it's so wonderful i know new york i can't live without it i can't live without it i'm so new york bad. is the best place what's your favorite takeout oh it really depends um it really depends there's this one place that i keep just when i can't think of anything else i always go to them it's this like sort of Korean fast food joint called Garlic to the Chicken. They mostly do like Korean fried chicken and some other stuff. But the thing that I always want from them is they got this like box. It's like a bento box where you can get like a couple pits of chicken and then like rice and salad and like some kimchi. And that's all. And it's really nice. And it's just like a simple little like it's like a TV dinner Mm. or like a Lunchable. It's like a grown up Lunchable. And it's Korean, so that it's like a double amazing. whammy. That and honestly, amazing. it's wonderful when I'm when I don't want to do anything. Mm-hmm. Speaking about language, in talking about local culture, including food and drink, the first thing that pops out to me is, oh, this person's a writer. <laughs> I'm looking at your stuff uh, with the connections that you bring in, but I'm also curious to ask you because I'm a writer too, mm. and an experience that I've had learning how to make videos for social media, short, super short format, doesn't make you doesn't make you better to have to write voiceovers for very short clips yeah it makes me need to be very thoughtful and less indulgent like in writing when you're just writing like prose you can like i mean like you're always going to be editing yourself down making yourself more concise but you can kind of let it let it rip and just like go super hard with like a flowery or like really like just luxurious detailed paragraph, but you just don't have the time and neither does anybody else in a video context. So it makes you really dilute whatever you're trying to say or not dilute, um, condense whatever you're trying to distill. say. Distill. Yeah, distill. Thank you. That's the water process I was thinking of. Uh, you got to like distill it down to like the absolute most important words, even down to like sometimes I've felt like the biggest move I made in a script was taking out a then, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, or something like that. Uh, and you got to like think so much more like micro in yeah. a script. I love what you do end up including though, because you, you know, you could condense everything down and a, some person could decide that everything that got left in that they thought was essential was just all like boring, mm-hmm. obvious stuff. Um, but you know, you're like, 
throwing in some obscure novel about clouds or putting in your stonerish thoughts about uh, whether we've robbed pigeons of their right to work. That was that was really funny. Yeah, I, I really enjoy a lot of your your food writing in the videos. Uh, peanut soup from Senegal that was neither overbearing nor anonymous. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it just really made me think about the peanut in in a new way. Yeah, no, thank you so much. I one of the big critiques actually I was getting throughout my time at Righteous Seeds is like cut it like pair back. You're too mm-hmm. much of a writer. It's too literary. Uh it's like too much that. Uh which is really funny because I feel like in every other context I'd been in besides that, it was the opposite. It was like it's too casual. You gotta take this more seriously. You gotta like, you know, this is fancy good stuff. And at Righteous Seats, they were like, whoa whoa like they loved those moments right where it was like something that was like very much like writerly but i like what they taught me and what i needed to learn is how to like present that without like couching it in a bunch of other stuff that like alienates a huge swath of people that i've never like to be honest made much of an effort to approach because i thought like that's that's the masses and I'm weird. Right. Right. Like, so you felt like it was kind of a, you were making insider references or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I'm glad that you didn't learn it too hard because it was so clear to me that you were the writer on the team and I was here for it. I just thought those, those third place videos were so special and, and I really loved them and I, I liked your writing and I liked the choices that you made and um, they're very funny. They're very rich. Thank you know, there's you. obviously like so much more to give, but you managed to include a lot. I was appreciating that editing process as, as I was watching them and I just think they're, I just think they're fantastic. That's so nice to hear. Yeah. I love that. I love the third place video series. If you happen to be listening to this episode in real time in early 2024, I am teaching a bilingual wine class in collaboration with Culture Without Borders Language Collective on February 17th for English and Spanish learners to learn wine tasting and meet conversation partners. You can get more information about the event on my Instagram page in my bio or by sending me a message on my website, mododibere.com. My website is a great place to sign up for my newsletter so that you can hear about stuff like this. Please consider becoming a paid supporter of my work by visiting patreon.com slash mododibere. Sign up for $5 a month. Unlock bonus content. There's also a couple of great ways that you can help this podcast for free. Telling a friend who you think would enjoy it, sending them a link to one of your favorite episodes, and also going on to Apple Podcasts, rating the podcast five stars and leaving a written review does more than you think for helping more people discover the show. And I really appreciate it. Feel free to take a moment to pause the show, explore some of those options. Julia and I will be here when you get back. Now, in in talking about food writing, coming out of music, I just remember being the girl who set up shows, being this concert promoter at a house concert venue for a while. And I would have to write on my own copy to promote the shows because nobody ever had anything useful online. No, of course. So I ended up basically writing my own album reviews for almost every band that I booked because people would just have like some pictures up. And I needed to tell people, this is what this music will sound like if you come to my events. Yeah. I just became aware early on 
that it's not an easy thing to talk about no. what music sounds like in a way that will translate to people. Yeah. And I, I feel the same thing with writing about wine and writing about food and other drinks. As I was learning how to taste wine, how to do that whole thing, I was like, oh, this is going to make me a better writer. Because to describe how something tastes and smells and makes you feel and how it feels in your mouth, like, that is not easy. Yeah. And English is like, surprisingly not as rich as I frankly would like it to be in flavor and mm. texture words specifically for food mm. also like action words we're really like we're we have such a rich vocabulary in other ways but like there I think are very poor in it but also like you know from limitation comes great creative creativity so there have been ways where I've described something where I know there's a single word for it in Italian and if this was Italian I would just use that but in English I gotta find my way around it and I found some really interesting creative ways to describe these things that do not have necessarily a word. Can you think of an example? I'm thinking, I'm trying to think of one right now. Um, recently, oh, so I was trying to describe like mantecare, but like inside your own mouth. Like when you like kind of emulsify something just by like the action of processing it within the mouth. And then by like doing that, you expose more flavors, right? And I was, and if this was a talent, I just would have said like, it was mantecato in the mouth and like, basta, that's it. Like I did the job. But in English, I like said something like, you know, you swish it around and feel the viscosity, like sort of change. And then when that happens, like the flavor also changes and affects your mouth flesh in a different way. <laughs> yeah. So you needed like 40 words. Yeah. yeah, it wanted for like a whole sort of elaborate explanation. But I also like that in food writing. I find that a lot of food writing in English tends to like sit with these like very just, I mean, I hate the word basic, but like basic words like, you know, this was insipid or this was salty. This was delicious. Like, yeah, but like, give me give me a little zhuzh. Like, you're the professional, supposedly. I mean, I think you need a writer in these spaces. Yeah. Um. As I was reviewing some third place videos, I had seen it before, but I found myself re-watching the video about the Ukrainian cafe that you used to go to with your grandfather and just crying. Okay, I mean, you let us know at the beginning of the video that he wasn't around and yeah. that you couldn't go with him. But just everything about that story was was so moving. Can you tell us about the the process? Yeah. So like all of my best work. Uh, it came about because I was incredibly stressed and under very high stakes. I had somebody cancel on me uh, super last minute and it was like Labor Day weekend or something. And I was like, and I was like going insane, not even in the city. Like, I didn't know what to do. And that place, I, I mean, I'm not a gatekeeper by nature. If somebody asked me, where do you go get your Ukrainian? I would have just said that place because that's the truth. But I What's also, the name of the place? Uh, it's called, I think, Ukrainian Village Restaurant or Ukrainian East Village Restaurant. Uh, and it's just on uh, 2nd Avenue off Astor Place. And I'd been kind of like not going out of my way to go there. Also, because at that point I had sort of relied on guests and, you know, no one had suggested it. So I had let it go. But then last minute I was like, OK, fuck it. We ball. We're going to go there. I'm craving the I'm craving stuffed cabbage and like, let's go. And the whole time I was there and like filming it, I was thinking like, OK, well, I'm going to have to like talk about him. But like, I wasn't sure how I was really like not in the 
business of trying to be like super sappy or like exploitative because I, you know, I've seen that and you can always kind of tell when it's they're like bleeding into it a bit too much and it doesn't feel sincere. And so I thought, like, okay, if I'm going to do this, it has to be like really sincere and it's going to be as corny as it needs to be for that to be the case. And I'm just going to do it. And if they don't like it, then they don't like it. But if they do like it, then I think the sentimentality and this would be me being very cynical, which frankly, I think I would have really appreciated. He was a fairly cynical man. Uh, and I was just like, OK, like if this goes, it goes. And it did. Uh, and when I was writing the script, that was when I had the really emotional moment, which I think as a writer makes the most sense. That was like. It was intense. Like writing that script was intense. For the people who haven't seen the video, can you can you recreate yes. it a little bit for us? So uh, in that video, I visit uh, this restaurant that I used to go to with my late grandfather, who uh, was a Cuban drag queen who lived in the West Village uh, in the 80s. And so he got to know a lot of these like original sort of classic New York restaurants uh, including like, you know, places like the diner by the courts on Center Street, like all those types of places. And this Ukrainian spot was one of my favorites because it felt like a secret. Like you had to know to go down the spooky hallway to go in there and eat. Uh, I liked that the ladies, they were never nice. Like that's a big part of it also. I liked that every single time I'd gone in there, it was some other, like it was always like empty except for one other table, but the other table was always somebody interesting. And... I, you know, it definitely is the third place. And I talked about coming here with co going there with him when I was a kid and then also growing to like it for myself as I went there on my own as an adult, you know, ordering things that he would have never ordered and, uh, you know, trying stuff out, sitting at tables that he would have never sat at. He would have never sat at that corner table. I'll be honest, but I'm a corner table person. The, the restaurant where you spent time together almost feels like another member of your family. Or, That's the thing. Or like a setting for your family. I mean, it's not your house, but it has its own personality, especially no, the way exactly. you describe it. And the thing is, like, I don't I don't like that there's at least I don't know if this is the case in other parts of the world. But I think in the West, we have such a separation between like work, house and like other places and it's not like just a literal separation like we're better at building walls right like mm -hmm. we're better at building good doors that lock mm -hmm. but also like there's a kind of spiritual separation where like the home is like the private space where like private stuff happens you have your important conversations in there and like recently there was this debate on tiktok where people were like why would you ever have a serious conversation at a restaurant why wouldn't you? Oh, my God. I was a bartender. Like, I witnessed so many breakups exactly. right at the bar. And yeah. there's something about, like, being able to create a memory. Also, like, yo, better to create a really painful memory in a space that you are not committed to ever being <laughs> in again than creating a memory like like that in your own, like, bedroom. Oh, I'm here for this take. While you're on a lease. I'm here for like, this take. Yeah. And I think restaurants are very important for that. Like, you need a, another place where, like happy memories or painful memories can happen and it's like divorced from whatever else happens mm -hmm. in your house because mm -hmm. so much more shit happens there you know coming out of the pandemic you know um a lot of people were feeling really really lonely and had for also the additional reason that they had some of those places were lost a lot of those places closed and didn't make it and there's this grief when 
a place like that closes. Yeah. I mean, you know, the latest hot restaurant in the really difficult New York City cycle, for instance, I mean, you can be sad about it, but there's just something, the grief that people feel when they yeah. share the news of a local closes or... Yeah, which is, I mean, that's also a big reason why I wanted to do the series in the first place. My, like, approach to food and food writing has always kind of been a little more anthropological, a little more centered on, like, how it's used and like how the people who go to it and work in it and like engage with it day in, day Mm -hmm. out, like what does that mean for them? Uh, But Third Places, I think, was the right vehicle for that because it was a sort of sweet, pithy way to describe this very broad, deep topic that I wanted to wrangle. Uh, But also it was a new topic for a lot of people, but an easy like way to approach these meta kind of topics when it comes to restaurants and the place that they have in a city. I I can definitely relate. And, you know, Moto di Berry is about local drinks and local sayings and people telling me about local drinks and local sayings. And and that's what that's what's being investigated and encountered. But it's really about local culture. So a big philosophical question. What what does it mean to be local? So uh, I did mention I have like so many hot takes about this as a New Yorker. I mean, I, like many of my comrades uh, as, you know, native New Yorkers, did for a very long time have, like, negative feelings about transplants. And I was like, you, I had all these, like, absurd metrics. Like, you're only a real New Yorker if blah, 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 blah. Like, you've been here X amount of years. You've done X amount of things. You've been to X, Y, Z, however many times. Like... And the more like granular I was getting, because for every rule I would make, I would meet an exception and I would like have it thrown back in my face. Like I'd meet somebody who like I could not like say that's not a New Yorker, clearly a New Yorker, no question about it. But like by my own silly metric that I as apparently a genius New Yorker should like, you know, be the arbiter uh, that, you know, just would fly in the face of that. So I realized that that wasn't working and that was probably not a smart way to go about it. And then my that choice was really cemented when I started being the sort of public facing person online. So many people saying like, this is not a real New Yorker. She's from Ohio or wherever the hell like. I d-. And you know what? It wasn't that I was insulted, which like maybe I was a little, but it really wasn't that I was insulted. I was like, OK, so clearly we're not very good at identifying mm. where, like who's the people New thought you were from ohio yeah. they were saying you didn't seem new york yeah. enough which is like okay so none of us are very good how do you good say at coffee it. coffee okay all right yeah like i mean you know what? it depends i feel like I, the accent will like come and go yeah. on words like that like there have been times where i just say like dog if you ask me to say dog i'll just say dog but if it's like within a sentence it ends up coming out like dog like very intense so honestly i'm not from new york originally I consider myself a New Yorker now. The non-accented example that you just tried to give sounded like a New York dog to me. Oh. <laughs> well, there we go. I also, you yeah. know, I didn't realize I had a New York accent until I left America. Mm. And suddenly strangers are coming up to me like, are you from New York? Like, how did you know? Uh, and it's always the accent. But you were just telling me how things changed for you when people started to question your bona fides. How did, how did that uh, change things for It you? mostly just made me realize that there was no metric mm. that was there was no like guaranteed way. Mm-hmm. There was no like thing that could be true about you that would unequivocally say like you are a New Yorker, you aren't a New Yorker. And then beyond that, 
then that raised the question of like, well, what do we even mean when we're saying this? Yeah. Like I had a vague sense of what I meant, but then like plenty of people who like, you couldn't question at all whether they're New Yorkers would not fulfill those like random metrics I came up with. And then some people will be like, oh, you have to be born and raised here. Do you know how many New Yorkers were not born here? I wasn't born here. Like they brought me here when I was an infant, like a lot of people and mm-hmm. other people were brought here as adults and or brought here. But you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I just don't think it's, it's I don't think it's a good use of our time as New Yorkers, as, as a city population. I don't think it's a very kind use of our time. Because then, you know, what happens, like, the transplants that we have problems with, and they exist, but they're like teenagers. The more you say, like, I hate you, I hate you, and you don't belong here, and you're bad, and I don't like you, stop it! Like, the more you do that, the more they're going to behave badly. It's really teenager mentality. You got to treat them like a teenager. And she's like, okay, honey, do, do what you need to do. You know I'm here if you need advice. And then, then suddenly they know how to behave. So, like, Excellent parenting advice, I have to say. My view of New York is really thinking about, okay, you have to be here for so long. That's just the opposite of the way that I've always felt about it. I've just gone with the vision of New York as this nexus of reinvention Mm. and that anybody who wants to be a New Yorker can just show up and claim the citizenship in this type of city that's about that on day yeah. one. I and mean, that's what I did. I mean, you know, I, I came running here, yeah. you know, and, and, and that's what it was like for me. And it was really this place where I felt at home in a way that I had never felt at home before. And um, I think the way that this initially manifested in me was um, by hating on Boston, um, <laughs> <laughs> which I didn't realize no, was a thing. That it, yeah. I just naturally came to it. I invented it um, <laughs> So I, for myself. Uh, so it was right after I arrived here. I went to Boston very shortly after. And, you know, I'd been riding the subway for like a matter of weeks in New York City. And I, I rode the whatever they call the subway in Boston. Yeah, that thing. And it was, people did not know how to move. They oh. were all trying not to bump into each other. So they all bumped into each oh, other. Of course. And I was just like, hive mind. Everybody goes where they're trying to go. No, exactly. And we just Once you know this choreography, out. the second other people are not also like up to speed with the choreography, it's, it really feels like I don't, I'm not an angry person. I don't feel rage like that. But when I do, it's almost always because of people acting wrong on the train like not moving correctly right right i had my things when i first moved here i was like the garbage is just on the street where are the dumpsters why are they doing this this is crazy or just yeah that fast walking thing you know my sweetheart that i arrived to to be here with um was walking so fast to to like catch the train and i just felt like he was leaving me behind yeah my boyfriend (laughs) still hasn't you know my boyfriend's lived here almost 10 years now and he's still doesn't get the speed thing it's not like he's from a million he's from long island Mm -hmm. like he should get this every time we're walking somewhere he's like why are you running away from me (laughs) i'm not running this is a normal speed i have long legs like what do you want me to say like i also can't walk slower when i lived in europe i tried to train myself to walk at the pace of all these leisurely meandering europeans it was not working. Like, I, can, I stopped paying I attention. Re- I speed back up. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, you really have to catch a low gear. It's, it's, it's a conscious, conscious thing. Um, you really notice how much faster you're walking than everybody else. What are some of the local New York drinks that you discovered when you were out on your series that you want to tell me about? So, 
Uh, because I filmed a lot of the third places like early in the day, I wasn't actually doing a lot of like drink drinking. Oh, it doesn't have to be alcohol. Yes, but I, if you know, I never thought that you could classify New York by a given cocktail. I thought like it's too diverse, it's too many different tastes. Like, there's no way. And yet, something I learned during third place is basically everywhere I went that had alcohol had a margarita. Mm-hmm. And it was good. Like, it yeah. wasn't like a mid-margarita. The thing is, every time I think about it, every mid-margarita I've had in this city has been pretty nice. Yeah. And my theory now is that the the real drink of New York is a margarita. Um, but I did have an amazing uh, morir soñando. Ooh, what's that? I think it's Dominican or Puerto Rican. It's one of those two. It's orange juice, like, smoothied with milk. Sounds insane, but it's so good. And it's, like, the name literally means, like, to die while dreaming. Like, no. Are exact. you kidding? Yeah. Like, okay, I need one of drama. those right now. Amazing. I have had pretty good success finding it at like any of those Dominican steam table places. If they got like juices, they'll have that. Those places are so great. Um, I've noticed a lot of Mexican places, at least out in Queens, they've started selling it themselves because they got all the stuff for it. And I think they just figured out from the local Dominicans like, oh, that's a thing. Let me make that because uh, they got all the stuff. So Mexican places, definitely Dominican places. I think you could probably find it at a Puerto Rican place. Mm-hmm, I'd mm-hmm. be really surprised if you didn't. Can you say the name for me? Morir Soñando. Julia, we talked about your your third place series, which has now come to an end. It's been announced on the internets that you've recently completed a novel. I know you were a food journalist before collaborating with Righteous Eats. What's going on for you now? Or what are you interested in happening? What are your ideas? So uh, I think top down, the plan, I think for just the rest of forever is just like put my stuff out there. And uh, in the hopes that eventually someone will be like, that's really good. I wonder what happens if we pay her. (laughs) That's the hope. And listen, it hasn't not worked out for me yet. Find Julia's videos on her Instagram. Julia underscore underscore AK. Is there anything else that you want to tell us? Any any deep thoughts that you want to share? Or shallow thoughts? I, I I hope that you are treasured forever in someone's heart, including your own. Oh, I like that. That's that's what I have to say. Uh, well, I have a, a little motto, too, that I can use to close the show. Uh, thank you so much. Julia is really fun. Thank you for having really me. Really fun talking with you. This is great. Um, we're also going to record an interview in Italian. Um, if you're not aware, modo di bere è anche disponibile in italiano. Si chiama modo di bere italiano. If you speak Italian or you're trying to speak Italian, you can go over to Modo di Bere Italiano and listen to the interview with Julia Alvarez Katz in Italian. To all of our listeners, wherever you go and whatever you like to drink, always remember to enjoy your life and to never stop learning. That's so gangster. I love that. (laughs) Thank you. That's wonderful. Follow Moto di Berry on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok for even more unique and encouraging drinks and language content. Music for the podcast was composed by Ercilia Prosperi and performed by the band O. You can purchase their recordings at oumusic.bandcamp.com. Yeah,